Chapter 7 of The Radio Gunner by Alexander Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fleet Arrives In August, the preparation of Punta Delgada as a base for the entire fleet was completed, and the fleet arrived. In supreme command was Admiral Johnson, a distinguished figure, a man of commanding personality, well-trained in his profession and conspicuous for his facility of maintaining the morale of the fleet at its best. The change at Punta Delgada was impressive. Hitherto, the informality of the destroyer had characterized the life there. Now, all the pomp and ceremony of the battleship pervaded the place where once the most typical sight had been officers and men in old and paint-smooched uniforms or in dungarees working among the torpedo tubes and engine hatches on the cramped deck of a lean destroyer, now the eye turned to the mighty dreadnought with her vast expanse of quarter-deck, immaculately clean, on which paced to and fro officers in faultless uniform." The sea was dotted with these great ships, and with scouts, and armored cruisers, and a host of auxiliary craft. Liberty parties came and went, and the picturesque old town swarmed with American blue jackets, interspersed with the sailors of the British and French navies. It is the pride of radio officers and radio chiefs in the fleet to be able to deal with their own problems when away from the home navy yard, to be independent of outside help. So it was with the fleet at Punta Delgada. Problems they had, but it would not occur to the radio personnel of a battleship to look for help in their solution to the mothership of a destroyer flotilla. Yet it wasn't long before the radio chiefs on the battleships discovered that the radio test shop where Evans worked was a place worth visiting. Interesting things were to be seen there, and ideas and hints could be informally picked up which somehow helped them make their apparatus work when they got back to their own ships. Thus the little laboratory came more and more to be sought as an oracle. As a consequence of this, Evans soon came to be welcome in the radio rooms of the various battleships and cruisers where problems existed. Lieutenant Larrabee, under whom Evans was technically supposed to perform his duties, naturally felt that his handy gunner belonged to the flotilla, and he was prone to demur a bit at his digressions into the battle fleet. But he had come to feel that Evans's activities were somewhat difficult to control, and that after all it was just as well not to try to control them too rigidly. Besides, Larrabee had sense enough to see that, if Evans's services could be really useful to the fleet, the fleet had better have them. Evans found the radio equipment in too many of the ships in a disappointing condition. The more modern apparatus was badly installed and very poorly understood by the personnel. The new British vacuum tube transmitter on very few ships was giving the efficient service and satisfaction of which it was capable. He soon discovered to his dismay that just where perfection of apparatus was of most vital importance to the entire fleet, where it ought to count for as much as in all the other ships put together, in Admiral Johnson's flagship, there all the best efforts of the Bureau of Engineering to make the nerve center of the fleet perfect had been slighted. His first visit to the flagship made his heart sink. 
Because of her supreme importance in directing the whole fleet, her radio room had been enlarged and equipped with apparatus more highly developed than had ever been seen aboard ship. Special methods had been devised to expedite the handling of the great and complex volume of dispatches to all branches of the fleet, which in a great naval action must go on without interference or confusion. The initial installation had been made, but the space needed for using it properly had been encroached upon for miscellaneous storage purposes, and the most valuable features of the installation had been neglected and abused till it was woefully crippled. The plan of fleet control, so carefully worked out in the Bureau, was frustrated at its central point, in the flagship. Evans began looking for the cause of the trouble. The radio chief was listless and discontented, but it was not his fault. The fleet radio officer seemed discouraged and disgruntled. At first, he was rather uncommunicative as to the general plan of coordinating the fleet's activities, but before long the sympathetic interest which Evans showed in the problem of making the most of the situation drew him out and revealed the fact that the trouble lay in the admiral's chief of staff. This officer, Captain Brigham, was one of the senior four-stripers in the Navy, a man of impressive bearing and iron will. He was a conspicuous exponent of the conservative point of view in all naval matters. He was insistent on decorum and etiquette to the last detail, and he guarded his authority and prestige with a jealous diligence. He was one of those officers who insist on keeping their fingers on every activity that comes under their jurisdiction, if only to throttle it. All of the officers on his staff excelled in officer-like bearing. Nowhere in the fleet were salutes executed in more perfect form. Behind this cloak of faultless formality, there was nothing which made for efficiency in the coordination of the fleet. Captain Brigham had Commander White, the fleet radio officer, completely under his thumb. White had ideas as to the proper organization of communications, but they were snubbed before they even found expression. Captain Brigham had himself been a radio officer for two or three months just after the close of the war with Germany, and he flattered himself that his knowledge of radio was all that could be desired. The new methods which had been developed by the Bureau of Engineering to meet the vast demands of the modern fleet with the best that science could offer differed so much from those which he recalled as standard in the days of his youth that they were not to his liking. He had abused his authority by having the more modern parts of the apparatus dismantled, and the specially trained operators who understood their use sent away from the ship. The remaining radio force was quite inadequate for the proper handling of the flagship's communications in the event of battle. These facts were not posted in so many words on any bulletin board, but Evans read them almost as clearly in many signs and symptoms and in the stray remarks of those with whom he talked. With the fleet radio officer, he talked quite frankly, discussing the appalling prospect of a great naval action in which the vast fleet of the enemy would operate with perfect coordination between its battle cruisers, scouts, and destroyers, directed by its flagship, as much a unit as a battleship operating from the bridge, while the Allied fleet, 
its directing nerve center, semi-paralyzed, would be doomed to confusion and almost certain disaster. Do you realize what it means, he said? It would be like a man with half his brain gone to pot competing at fencing or wrestling with a champion in perfect trim. Commander White shrugged his shoulders. Between you and me, he said, the radio on this ship isn't what it ought to be, but what can you do about it? Evans was on his mettle. I'll talk with Captain Brigham, and if I don't make him understand the need of that apparatus, it won't be because I haven't tried. You've got your nerve with you, said White. Take my advice and keep away from him if you value your hide. There are more important things in the service than my hide, said Evans. I was sent here by the Bureau of Engineering to see that the newer and less familiar parts of the radio equipment in the fleet are in proper working order and are understood by the personnel. If I fail to point out to those concerned what I find amiss, I shall not be doing my job. That's a fine spirit, but if you get away with it, you'll be a wonder, said White. I'm afraid, though, you'll be out of luck. It was not long before Evans found the chance he wanted, when the chief of staff came into the radio room for an inspection. Evans approached him, ignoring his terrible frown, with a calmness of voice which Captain Brigham had never heard in a subordinate since attaining his present rank, explained his mission, and said in conclusion, I'm afraid the apparatus in its present condition won't give you the service it is meant to. The tirade from Captain Brigham which this remark called forth would have done credit to a ward politician on the stump. The floodgates of his wrath were opened. The apparatus was as he wanted it and was not to be changed. He was sick and tired of the Bureau of Engineering with its meddlesome nonsense. Evans listened patiently till he had finished, then put to him some searching and practical questions about the proposed handling of communications. He sketched certain tactical situations which might well occur and asked how the complex task of communicating simultaneously with all parts of the fleet would be handled without the apparatus designed for this purpose. This display in a warrant officer of that function which Captain Brigham had never exercised— imagination in picturing the tactical situations he might have to meet and preparing his mind for them touched him on a sensitive spot. His wrath knew no bounds. Yet his pride forbade his dismissing the offender at once from his presence and compelled him instead to talk more volubly than ever, completely evading the issue and taking refuge in a magnificent invective against modern methods. You radio fans and cranks are cluttering up the ships with newfangled gadgets and good-for-nothing specialists to play with them. Soon, there won't be room for the deck force. The ships are on their way to becoming scientific toy shops, and it's got to be stopped. The ships are meant for fighting. In the days when all the signaling was done from the bridge, we had the quartermasters under our eyes where we could watch them and keep them up to the mark. Now your big radio force of specialized men can hide behind all this mess of stuff down here and lounge about doing nothing. And if you try to keep them on the job, there's always some alibi about something no one else knows how to do. In the old days, before we had any radio or listening gear or other playthings, every man on the ship had to be a sailor and a fighting man, and every one of them was worth ten of your damned specialists. 
I don't just see, though, how this apparatus is going to cope with the fleet requirements in action, said Evans quietly when Brigham had finished. It will cope with my requirements, said Captain Brigham savagely, and you'll cope with my requirements if you leave it alone. And with that, he left the radio room in high dudgeon. Commander White had entered during the conversation and heard most of the captain's tirade. Why doesn't he chuck all the radio gear overboard while he's about it, said Evans half to himself and half to Commander White. He might rig the ship with sails and smoothbore guns and then engage the enemy at close range with the valor of our fathers. That would breed fine sailors while they lasted. Well, said White, I should say you've done your duty by the Bureau and you drew a good salvo doing it. I didn't expect you'd make much progress with the old man. When next Captain Brigham saw Commander White, they were alone together. It wouldn't do to speak of it to that gunner, said the chief of staff, but I may as well tell you that before I left Washington, I had a talk with Commander Rich, who handles the radio business in the Bureau of Engineering. He's a man of sound judgment and good old-fashioned horse sense, who understands the point of view of a well-balanced, all-round naval officer, and he doesn't at all believe in having the fighting efficiency of the ships sacrificed to the caprice of scientific specialists. He told me a great deal of the radio junk furnished this ship was authorized against his better judgment, and he believed I'd do well to let the equipment be reduced in practice to the simple, standard gear we are all used to. For some time, White kept this information to himself. Evans returned to the mothership of the destroyer flotilla and, slipping on dungarees, plunged into a bit of experimental engineering on which he had recently embarked, he worked at it the rest of the day and late into the night, all alone in the radio test shop. If only we had Fraser for chief of staff, he said to himself, we'd have a fleet that could stand up to the enemy with little fear of the outcome. But with this dummy, God help us. The old admiral's all right, but he's got to have a good chief of staff to swing this fleet. With feverish energy, he wielded pliers and soldering iron till after midnight. Then he put down his things and said, Well, I've got to sleep on this thing if I can, and turned in. His sleep was restless and full of stress and worry. He dreamt that he saw a miniature admiral in a cocked hat standing on the deck of a frigate of the olden days, brandishing his sword. The ship was no bigger than a toy, but the little admiral, puffing with pride, strutted up and down. He looked like Captain Brigham. As the dream progressed, the ship grew smaller and smaller, and the admiral shrank proportionately. But the more he shrank, the more pompous became the bravado with which he brandished his sword. A great dreadnought came over the horizon and bore down on the little admiral. Her great turret guns trained on him. Near her she came, her guns growing to monstrous size till the admiral seemed but a speck in front of the yawning muzzle of a gigantic gun. A projectile bigger than any the world has ever seen slid out of the great muzzle and knocked off the admiral's head, which fell into the sea with the splash of a tiny pebble. Evans awoke with an oath, turned over, and slept again. When next he dreamed, he found himself sailing in his own little catch 
the petrel gliding through tranquil waters by an enchanted shore where great trees hung out far over the water, casting a deep, cool shadow beneath them, trees now resembling the great tree ferns and other tropical forms of the Borgia Garden, now the familiar oaks and pines of the New England shore. In the morning he returned to his engineering task in the radio test shop. The electricians at work there noticed that he was not himself this morning. Most of the time he was silent and abstracted with a far-off look in his face, or frowning gloomily. Now and then he would show exasperation, wielding his tools as if bent on annihilating the apparatus with which he worked. Now and then he would come out of his trance, crack a joke, and restore the usual good humor of the test shop. By the middle of the afternoon he finished his task, put down his tools, and went ashore. With the usual handful of breadcrumbs he sought the Borgia garden, wandering through the tree-fern grottoes, and came at last to the ancient watchtower under the old cedar tree. Here he sat down and gave himself over to luring his little friends, the birds, down from the trees with a tempting array of crumbs. Soon he was surrounded with his feathered coterie, presenting a scene of busy festivity. Then he gazed off over the blue expanse of the sea, dotted with the great ships of the Allied fleet riding easily at their moorings, a panorama of strength and majesty which could scarcely fail to thrill the beholder. But today the thrill for Evans was swamped by other emotions. Scrap iron and paint with that poison adrift in the fleet, he muttered to himself. He threw some more crumbs on the ground. What would you do with him, little bird, he said, as one of them hopped up close to his hand. Throw him overboard? Throw him overboard damn quick if you've got the sense I give you credit for. He sat silent a few minutes more, deep in thought, then suddenly exclaiming, There's only one way out, and it's time to act. He jumped to his feet with a start which sent the birds scattering and scurrying to the nearest cover. Goodbye, little birds, he called, throwing the last of his crumbs on the ground. Then he hastened to communication headquarters. That night, a dispatch went out to Washington, requesting the Bureau of Engineering to send a shipment of vacuum tubes and sundry other supplies to Punta Delgada. Evans turned in early in a tranquil frame of mind now, for the die was cast, and slept the sleep of healthy childhood. The next day, a message came from Washington ordering a certain destroyer to proceed at once to Hampton Roads. This particular destroyer had just had a complete refit, and her engines were in the best of running order, although these details were not known in Washington. Her skipper was a very good sailor man, characterized by a faculty for reaching his destination promptly. Even if things didn't go just as he wished, he knew how fast he could safely drive his ship against head seas, and when the need arose, he drove her. And yet the schedule for patrol and escort duty was such that, for reasons also unknown in Washington, this ship could be more easily spared at Punta Delgada during the next two weeks than most of the other destroyers. In spite of this fact, Captain Brigham expressed an abundance of resentment at the importunity of the Navy Department for taking away one of his best destroyers just when he would like to have her on hand.
Two hours after this dispatch, a series of others arrived, including one directing Evans to proceed by the first available ship to Washington and report for duty at the Bureau of Engineering. The destroyer was ready for sea the following morning, and Evans was directed to take passage on her. An hour later, she had slipped out of the harbor and headed westward, her officers speculating wildly as to what their sudden mission to home waters could mean. In all, there were twice as many hypotheses advanced as there were officers on board. Evans contributed his share, but in the end, their conjecturing left them just where they started. When he arrived in Washington, Evans went to a hotel and took a room. From there, he telephoned to Secretary Mortimer and told him of his arrival. "'When can you come and see me?' said Mortimer. "'Any time,' answered Evans. "'Only wouldn't it be just as well for me not to go too directly from the destroyer to your office? Even in civilian clothes, someone might recognize me and link me up with the ship. Why don't you come here? I'm pretty keen to see you.' All right, I'll come right over, was the answer. In a few minutes more, they were chatting away in the privacy of Evans' room. Evans described the general condition of the base at Punta Delgada, the destroyer flotilla, and the fleet as a whole, and in less than an hour, he presented a more effective survey than Mortimer could have got from a month's intensive study of official reports. The fleet was revealed as an organization in its true perspective. When Evans came to the chief of staff, he waxed truly eloquent. Mortimer had listened to the ablest lawyers and political orators. He had heard the most famous after-dinner speakers, but never had he heard so many artistic combinations of derogatory terms as Evans assembled to convey his impressions of Captain Brigham. "'Sounds as if you had a grudge against the poor fellow,' said Mortimer. "'I've got a grudge, all right,' answered Evans.' Whether I'm biased by it is another question. I worried myself sick over it for a day and a half, and every angle I could view it from, I came to the same conclusion. He's getting the coordination of the fleet so undermined that in action it would hardly be worth the powder to blow it off the map, and that would be forthcoming damn quick from the enemy. It is all right on parade, but in action we should be up against the enemy's teamwork, which is marvelous. The best organized business in the world isn't in it compared with them. We should be like a man with half a brain. The coordinating mechanism is so crippled, we shouldn't stand the chance of the proverbial celluloid dog chasing the asbestos cat through hell. The radio business is enough to damn him, but in addition, I found evidence that he's doing his best to get the gunnery back to where it was in the pre-Sims days. Fine on paper, rotten in practice. He's a first-class stuffed shirt, and the quicker you can scrap him, the better. What about the admiral? asked Mortimer. Isn't he a pretty good sort? How does he stand his offending chief of staff? The admiral is a good man, said Evans. He is well-trained, standing high in his profession, has fine qualities of leadership, maintains good discipline, and is universally liked and respected. It is a great thing for the morale of the fleet to have such a man at the head. He has a good military personality, but he is a bit old-fashioned and is rather short on imagination. He doesn't adapt himself readily to new conditions, but, of course, that's hard for any man of his age. He will do the obvious very well, but I wish he had a little keener perception. 
Now this stuffed club, Brigham, is the finest ever at keeping up good military form and appearances. The flagship is a very smart ship to look at it. The Admiral has a touch of the old-fashioned weakness for that sort of thing, and he doesn't know quite enough about the detail of modern methods to see how rotten things are below the surface. You see, he was trained in the days before those things which modern developments have forced us to rely on had become vital. Consequently, he doesn't quite know how to probe his organization and make sure the details are well attended to. He relies on his chief of staff, and it's pretty hard for him to do otherwise. He ought to have a keen, alert, adaptable chief of staff with a real head. Then he'd be all right. Evans then told of Fraser and his experience with him on the submarine hunt. He told how he had searched through the destroyer flotilla and later through the fleet looking for men of real brains and capacity for generalship, and how Fraser had seemed to him to stand head and shoulders above the rest. There's the ideal man for chief of staff, he said. With his tact and personality, he would quickly win the admiral's confidence, and with Fraser at his right hand, all the admiral's good qualities of leadership would stand out at their best. They'd make a splendid combination. Fraser would be the brains, Admiral Johnson the embodiment of authority and formal leadership, which would carry weight with the personnel at large and give the necessary moral support to make Fraser's skill effective. They continued thrashing out the question and discussing it from every possible angle till Mortimer was as firmly convinced as Evans that the salvation of the fleet lay in replacing Brigham with Fraser. Then their talk turned to the more detailed problem of the personnel directly concerned with radio engineering and other communication duties. Commander Rich, it seemed, was as firmly entrenched as ever in the esteem of both Mortimer and Admiral Bishop, the bureau chief. Evans, having nothing tangible to support his feeling of uneasiness, did not dwell on that subject. I believe, Sam, said Evans, it would be a very good thing to send Elkins out to be fleet radio officer. He's just the man for the job, and coming from the Bureau of Engineering, he would have the latest developments fresh in his mind. He'd appreciate the chance to get into the game, and he deserves it. White, who has that job now, is a good man, but he hasn't the brains or the force that Elkins has. I think it would be a good move just to have them swap places. White, coming fresh from the fleet, would be of great value to the Bureau. It always helps to have someone there who is thoroughly familiar with conditions afloat. White has been afloat a good while and might not mind the change. And anyway, if emphasis is given to the fact that his point of view is needed in the Bureau rather than that the best brains are now needed in the fleet, he needn't feel that he's being put on the shelf. I'll have to find some billet for Brigham where he'll be comparatively harmless. Perhaps Commandant of the Great Lakes District or of the Naval Prison, said Mortimer. Yes, said Evans, or put him in command of the old Constitution, tied up in her tomb at the Boston Navy Yard, where they show off the relics and hoist the flag every morning at eight bells to set the pace for the yard. He'd make them get the flag up on time, all right. Put him in charge of a bunch of incompetents who'll be no good anyway, and let him teach them an officer like Baring. 
As to White, I wouldn't transfer him at the same time as Brigham. It would draw too much attention to the sweeping change. Besides, it would be too tough on White to bracket him with that old dummy. Get Brigham out first. Then, in a week or so, you could let Elkins go out to relieve White. The next day, Mortimer set the machinery in motion to promote Fraser from commander to captain in order that he should have the necessary rank and then to make him chief of staff in place of Brigham. When the news of this change reached the fleet, it caused a considerable commotion. Speculation as to the occasion of it constituted the burden of the wardroom gossip for several days. Some few officers tried to connect it in some way with the sudden and mysterious departure of the destroyer for Hampton Roads, but their ingenuity failed them, and the idea was dismissed as quite impossible. On the journey home in the destroyer, a somewhat new problem had engaged Evans' attention. It is a recognized principle that secret codes must be changed frequently. Enemy experts are constantly at work studying the radio messages which their operators have intercepted, and it is granted that in time they will gather sufficient data to work out any code. It has been said that ten days is as long as it is safe to use one code. Evans had time to spare on his destroyer trip, and he found a fascinating occupation in trying to devise a new system of codes more baffling to the enemy. He finally hit on a scheme which would render the codes so difficult to unravel that he felt sure they could be trusted for fully twice as long as those then in use. When in Washington, after his conference with Mortimer, he sought Commander Barton of the Intelligence Bureau, with whom he had worked in London over the establishment of communication with Herringham, and laid his scheme before him. Barton was well pleased with the plan and requested Evans to work out the details of his system. For the next fortnight, Evans was busily engaged in this task, first devising and planning the system and then arranging for the printing of the necessary codebooks. Not content with one system, he devised another so different that even should the enemy become thoroughly acquainted with the first, it would give them no clue at all to the second. In fact, his productivity in this line reached such a point that a less enthusiastic and enterprising man than Barton would have begged him to give ore. During these days, Evans also gave a large share of his time to the Bureau of Engineering, where he got his finger once more in the pie of radio engineering progress. His experience with the fleet had given him a somewhat new point of view, which led to a number of practical suggestions. Many bright ideas which had developed in the planning rooms had to be snubbed because utterly unsuited to conditions afloat. As before, he found himself acting informally as liaison officer between the Bureau of Engineering and the Office of the Director of Naval Communications. He found loose ends in the way of fitting the more highly specialized apparatus to the intricate uses for which it was required, and the problem thus raised brought him closely in touch with the radio men in communication headquarters. There was one man attached to the office of the Director of Naval Communications who especially attracted his interest and attention. This was Lieutenant Wellman, a lean man with dark, mobile eyes and an almost uncanny look of penetration. 
he had recently been attached to this office and had a reputation of great knowledge of telephone and telegraph systems and all manner of communication problems. Just as Evans spent much of his time at the DNC office, so Wellman spent much of his at the Bureau of Engineering, where he was on friendly terms with the officers in the radio division from Commander Rich down. Evans found him alert and ready with an intellectual grasp of the problems before them and eager for technical knowledge, especially of the newer radio methods. These Evans discussed with him at some length, but his own gift for inquiry was such that in their talk Evans did most of the questioning and Wellman most of the telling. Evans also spent more than one evening in conference with Mortimer. With mutual profit they viewed the war in its larger perspective and unearthed its salient features from amidst the jumble of apparently unrelated facts. The situation, boiled down to its essentials, was much as it had been at the time of their earlier talks before Evans went to the fleet. The increased destruction of enemy submarines had facilitated the shipping of supplies to northern Europe, but in this respect the situation was still critical. Every submarine that could be destroyed would help to turn the balance. The soldiers we are sending over help the morale of the Allies and aid them materially in holding the line, said Evans, but do you think they'll ever push it back enough to win the war that way? Mortimer shook his head. It doesn't look like it. I fear all the manpower of Northern Europe and North America combined would be expended in pushing through to a decision on land, said Evans, frowning. They depend on their sea power to such an extent that if we could strike hard at that, we could paralyze them, said Mortimer. Don't you think so? Yes, said Evans, and they know it and are guarding their fleet mighty carefully. Conversely, if they could smash our fleet, they'd finish us, and if they saw what looked like a good chance, they'd try it. It would be the most colossal sea battle in history if those two fleets met in the open sea. With Fraser on the job and a slight advantage of visibility or other weather conditions on our side, such as we might get if we could choose our time with Jeremy's help, I believe we could be reasonably sure of doing them in, at least enough to justify seeking an engagement. Can't you think of any scheme for baiting them to action at such a time, said Mortimer? Evans pondered a while. I have a wild scheme in my head, he said. It's one of those notions of which I'm the victim now and then. Let's have it, said Mortimer. Evans then propounded a series of imaginary situations and their strategical and tactical developments, which aroused in Mortimer a strange alternation of enthusiasm and doubt. At the end, he felt enough conviction that there was merit in the scheme to satisfy him that it should in some way be followed up. Don't you think I had better take this up with the general staff and send some suggestion to the admiral, he asked? No, answered Evans. Admirals don't like their strategy and tactics fed to them by civilian secretaries much better than by gunners. Besides, it's probably full of weak points as I've outlined it. I'm not a trained admiral, you know. Anyway, give them a chance to work it out themselves, and they'll probably improve on it in doing so. If the premises are sufficiently suggestive to the staff at Punta Delgada, they may easily hit on the main ideas or something better. Frazier's a wizard at that sort of thing. 
So, you fancy the premises can be made sufficiently suggestive, said Mortimer? I shouldn't wonder a bit, answered Evans with a smile. See here, said Mortimer, it's damn silly for you to be going on as a warrant officer. You ought to be taking the responsibilities you know how to handle and taking them squarely. I could work the regulations now so as to have you promoted to commander very quickly, and it wouldn't be long before you'd be a captain. Then you could fit into the fleet more nearly where you belong. Oh, come, said Evans. I wouldn't know what to do with all that rank, and I should be looked on with suspicion and jealousy. I'd always be having to buck the resulting hostility. No, no, Sam, I can carry on much better as I am, doing things in my own way. For one thing, I find it an enormous advantage to be able to get right into the game as I've done on the destroyers, particularly on that sub-hunt, and see how things really are. The more gold braid you have on, the less things look as they really are when you go to look at them. I'd give my eye teeth to get into the fleet and really see how things are going, said Mortimer. That's just it, said Evans. You don't suppose you could go aboard the ships as Mr. Secretary and see things as they really are, do you? Everyone would be in his best uniform, full dress, at attention, the band playing, and nothing doing. No war going on at all. That's so, said Mortimer, but I'm afraid your fondness for tinkering with apparatus will lead you to do too much of that and distract you from the bigger problems you ought to be thinking about. I know that's my vice, answered Evans, but the appeal of the game as a whole will draw my thoughts in that direction to the extent of daydreams quite bold enough for all practical purposes, bold enough to make the gold braids snub me good and plenty if they knew what I was thinking about. I need some manual work to keep me normal, to occupy my hands and lower nerve centers while I'm thinking about some of the knotty problems that come up. Some tangible part of the machinery in my hands and before my eyes will help the whole plan of its use to take shape in my mind. For some time they argued the pros and cons, and at last Mortimer somewhat reluctantly yielded and consented to let Evans return to the fleet as a radio gunner. It was also decided that in the near future, Commander Barton should proceed to Punta Delgada to direct the work of the Bureau of Naval Intelligence there, since it had now definitely become the storm center of naval activity. During the days that remained before Evans was to return to the fleet, he was kept busy completing the new systems of secret codes for Commander Barton and conferring with various officials in the Bureau of Engineering and in the office of the Director of Naval Communications. In the latter office, he had many conversations with Lieutenant Wellman, and with each conversation, he became more interested in the man, seeing in him great possibilities in connection with the coordinated machinery of communications and naval intelligence. It transpired that Wellman had traveled extensively, was an accomplished linguist, and possessed considerable knowledge of enemy country. It was, therefore, suggested that he should confer with Commander Barton to see how far his qualifications might render him useful to the Bureau of Naval Intelligence. On the particular morning when Lieutenant Wellman was awaiting this conference, Evans came to Barton's office with some copies of one of his new secret codes, fresh from the printer. Leading to the inner office was an anteroom at the outer door of which stood a sentry, whose duty it was to see that none but officers and others with proper credentials entered. 
Evans came with a bundle of code books under his arm and muttered a password to the sentry, who pressed a button just inside the door, at which Commander Barton rose from his desk in the inner office and came to the door between it and the anteroom. Seeing Evans at the outer door, he called to him to come in. In the anteroom sat Lieutenant Wellman, waiting till it should suit Commander Barton's convenience to confer with him. As he sat there, his dark, penetrating eyes traveled restlessly about the room, observing and noting everything that human observation could encompass. Evans, seeing Wellman alone there, exchanged greetings with him and passed on into the inner office. He opened the bundle and handed the six books it contained to Barton. Wellman, following Evans with his eye, silently shifted his seat so that he could watch the proceedings through the half-open door. Barton took the books and thanked Evans, who then left the room. Barton opened one of the books and glanced through it rather hastily, postponing a more careful examination till he should have more time. Then he unlocked a drawer in his desk and put the six books into it. He was just closing the drawer when a yeoman entered from a side door rather hurriedly, saying, "'There's a long-distance call from San Francisco. Your desk phone is being repaired, so I've had the call plugged into the soundproof booth.' Commander Barton jumped up and, followed by the yeoman, hurried out through the side door to answer the telephone. It was only for a few seconds that the room was deserted, but in those seconds Wellman slipped in, took one copy of the new secret code from the drawer, and slipped out again, tucking it under his coat as he went. Leaving the anteroom as one who has transacted his business, he returned the salute of the sentry and walked briskly away down the corridor, passing Evans, who was walking slowly, so absorbed in his thoughts that it seemed a pity to disturb him. Yes, better not interrupt his reverie. In an hour he had left Washington. In five weeks more he arrived in Constantinople, no longer in the uniform of a United States naval officer, carrying in his satchel the treasured code book. He was no longer Lieutenant Wellman, but now in his true colors, Commander Bella of the Turkish Naval Intelligence Service. Great was the rejoicing at the naval headquarters when Bella arrived with his prize. Some facts of interest he had obtained while in Washington, but his stay had been cut short by the rare opportunity which had put him in possession of the codebook, and this he deemed to be worth so much more than the information he might have obtained by staying longer that he had taken the responsibility of making all possible speed with the book to headquarters. His prompt decision in doing so was warmly commended by his chief, who was even more pleased than Bella himself with the unexpected outcome of his mission. In the codebook was a key explaining how it was to be changed monthly to prevent breaking. Moreover, the dates were given on which each arrangement was to go into effect. Thus, it was evidently good for the decoding of Allied naval messages for several months to come. In Washington, conditions had been especially favorable for Lieutenant Wellman to effect his disappearance unnoticed. His duties had been such as involved extensive traveling, and he had been given an unusually free hand in the arrangement of his own time. Moreover, when it became finally known that he had really disappeared, a variety of rumors explaining the fact passed into circulation in ways that were not generally understood and seemed impossible to trace. 
No one had seen him take the codebook, and it was so long afterwards that his disappearance became known to the officers at communication headquarters that, even had they been disposed to suspect him, it could hardly be expected that his disappearance would in any way lead to a checking up of the number of copies in Barton's desk. By the time Bella arrived in Constantinople, Herringham was well established in a post of high authority in the coalition government. The men who directed the affairs of this great conspiracy against the liberties of the world included, besides Turks, those of an extraordinary array of nationalities, Russians, Italians, Bulgars, Jews, Egyptians, and Arabs. Therefore, a well-disguised Englishman with Herringham's rare gift of impersonation might well fit into the organization without exciting suspicion. Yet Bella, on finding a stranger to him in such an important position, was strongly inclined to distrust him. He made guarded inquiries. Nothing of a compromising nature was known about him. On every hand, Bella was assured that this official, with his extensive knowledge of the nations allied against the coalition, had rendered most valuable services to the cause. Still, Bella suspected. Finally, he contrived to have an interview with Herringham alone and sought to probe the case. After feeling his way for some time with guarded questions, he asked Herringham rather suddenly if he had not lived for some time in England. Herringham, still in the Turkish language and with phrasing and intonation perfectly reproducing the diction of a thoroughbred Turk, replied casually, Indeed I have. I know the little sea-girt island well. Then, in a jocular vein, he added in the English language, aping the English manner of speech in a mocking tone, yet betraying an unmistakable Turkish accent, Have you been in Piccadilly? I say, it's a topping place, you know. The easy and confiding smile with which he cast this bit of ridicule on the Briton was altogether disarming, and when he added in Turkish, What fools those British are! Bella could hardly conceive that any but a true Turk could have spoken so. But now it was Herringham's turn to take the initiative. He questioned Bella about his recent trip to America and listened with admiration and wonder to the tale of his exploits in finding his way into the confidence of high officers in the Navy Department. With warm praise, Herringham drew forth more and more of the story, and as his frank appreciation dispelled the last of Bella's doubts, this cautious Turk ended by giving him a full recital of the information he had gained of radio affairs in the Allied Navy. One thing, however, Bella did not divulge. He said nothing to Herringham of the stolen codebook. A few days after Wellman's uncanny disappearance, Evans received his orders to return to Punta Delgada and report for radio duty on board the flagship. It was now early in November, and the autumn colors were fading on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay as the cruiser on which both Elkins and Evans took passage left the Virginia Capes and stood out to sea. In a few days, they sighted the greener shores of the Azores, where, in the outer harbor of Punta Delgada, the new battleship Delaware, the flagship, lay majestically at anchor, queen of the Allied Navy. End of Chapter 7